Elliot, which has a line in it that I find very evocative of some of the delicate balances and seeming paradoxes that we experience in the practice. In the poem he says, teach us to care and not to care, which on the face of it is a contradiction. It's a paradox. And it's also a very delicate balance. Reminds me very much of what we face in bringing our conditioned minds to this process, learning to care and not to care. On the side of caring, learning to care in the practice and in our lives, we talk about having a sense of ardency, of passion, of intense commitment, being able to have a feeling of determination, putting our energy someplace, and being persevering, not wavering, not pulling back or being afraid, being very active, very whole, learning commitment, learning to use our energy effectively, learning about effort, what that means. The basis or the foundation of learning this aspect of our practice, the kind of active use of our energy in a particular way, is having the conviction based on understanding that what we do actually matters, that what we do with our bodies, with our speech, with our minds, it all has an effect. That every moment of our lives is a powerful vehicle for expression and that it has an effect. That we do not live in a haphazard or chaotic or meaningless universe. Things do not just happen by accident. Things happen according to certain laws, the natural order of events. And in a very deep way, we can come to experience this and see that what happens within the body, what happens within the mind, how we relate to the world around us, it does have an effect. We do not, we should not feel as helpless victims of our lives. We can determine direction and move our lives in different ways. Things do not happen by accident. And if we understand genuinely how to achieve what we want, then we can do that.
it's really very simple. Before I went to India for the first time, which was almost 15 years ago, which sounds very funny to say, it seems like day before yesterday, <laughs> I was a student in the university in Buffalo, New York. And this was a fairly long time ago in terms of what was available in this country for people who were interested in meditation in a more practical way, not so much studying, but actually practicing, which was the main reason why I was going to go to India. Just before I left, Trungpa Rinpoche was on his first tour of this country, and he came to Buffalo to, to speak. And so the night before I left for India, I went to hear him speak. And at the end of that talk, he asked for questions. And the way people asked questions was to write them down on a piece of paper. And these were all handed to him at the end. And he selected out just different ones. One of the people that I was with, who I was going to be traveling to India with, wrote down the question, tomorrow I'm leaving for Asia to learn how to practice Buddhist meditation. Can you please give me some advice about where to go? And it happened to be one of the questions that Trungpa Rinpoche picked out of the pile, and he read it out loud, and then he paused for a moment, and he said, I think you had better follow the pretense of accident. And that was it. That was what I left for India with. No addresses, <laughs> no information, just a kind of encouragement to understand that it only seemed to be accidental. There was a pattern, there was an order to it all. And so we can, we can live in that understanding and direct our energy purposefully and with that sense of power. In the Buddha's description of the Eightfold Path, right understanding, which in so many ways is the culmination of the journey, actually appears first. When you look at the, the classical or traditional way of listing the eight folds of the path, right understanding comes first. And one of the reasons that it comes first, as though it were the very, very beginning of the journey, is because of this very question. Part of right understanding is the understanding of cause and effect. It is the understanding that we can act effectively, that we can make changes effectively, and that we can live in harmony with the laws of nature. And this is actually the very beginning. In some silent way, it's part of the reason everybody is here 
because of this belief or this understanding. They say that right understanding in this sense is kind of a junction. There are so many ways we can go with our lives. From just this one way of seeing, of viewing. The first way is the Kama way or the way of action. And it's based on our own experience, coming to have the understanding that how we live and how we act, our moral commitments, the degree in which we dwell in loving-kindness or the degree in which we don't, all of that has an effect and it can totally transform our lives. So that, for example, as we talked about before, when we have a certain sense of integrity and we feel firm in that integrity, that sense of morality, then we can live in fearlessness. We can live knowing we are not harming others and knowing others will not harm us. We can live with a great commitment towards generosity and giving and sharing, knowing that the fruit of that will be a sense of contentment with what we have and also having enough. We can live with a great commitment towards truthfulness, knowing that the result of that or the fruit of that will be a tremendous simplicity and ease and lightness and sense of, of being at peace and that others will be truthful towards us. And so in our lives we can look at all of these different threads and come to an understanding of how we can actually have the kind of happiness that most of us very deeply want. It is often not in the ways we may at first assume. It takes a great deal of honest looking to see what is actually that cause and effect relationship. And we can see that same thing in terms of working with the mind, that If we consistently and earnestly develop concentration, then we will have the force or power of concentration at our disposal. It becomes ours. It becomes a part of who we are. And so we can explore a range of experiences that are far beyond our normal waking consciousness because of the, the intensity of the focus and the power that we can develop. And we can also see that by careful observation and using this power of mind to look very deeply and very honestly at this body and mind that we can learn immeasurably 
about who we are, what this body is about, what this mind is about, what this life is about, and that it actually works. It's not a random or haphazard process. That by the actual doing of it, this ability becomes ours. It is something that becomes a part of us. And if we believe this, that it does matter what we do with our bodies, what we, th- what we do with our minds, and that we live in a certain way, then we can find boundless energy for putting it into practice because of this understanding, because of knowing. So the active commitment of energy in our practice and in our lives is what the Buddha talked about so often in terms of right effort. Effort is a somewhat confusing word in English. And so it takes a careful understanding of what is meant by this word. Another common translation is energy, which perhaps is also not quite right. I think it's somewhere in between energy and effort. That very active quality that allows us to commit ourselves wholeheartedly and have that sense of being ardent, not holding back, not hesitating, and not withdrawing. But an active, wholehearted completeness of being present. When energy is that strong, or effort is that strong, then it's the root of everything. It is this energy which transforms what we do into reality. Rather than having an academic interest or a theoretical background or even a great deal of faith, it is the energy which transforms it and brings it alive. It's that moment after moment giving of ourselves, not holding back that sustains the practice and continually renews it, makes it alive. The faculty of energy or effort is defined as being one of supporting and upholding and sustaining. And when it's very strong, it will not be shaken by anything. Any amount of fear may arise or any amount of doubt may arise or any amount of laziness may arise and the energy will have so much momentum that we will not falter, we will not stop. As Sansanim, who's a Zen master who who visits here about once a year at the end of the three-month course, said, You should cut your bargaining, only go straight ahead. 
And that's something of the flavor of right effort. No bargaining, no holding back. Starting and keeping on going. To have that much energy in a larger sense, outside of the context of intensive practice, right effort is usually defined in four ways, or it includes four different aspects. The first of these is to enhance and cultivate and renew skillful states that have already arisen. So that means, for example, if love or compassion or mindfulness or wisdom have arisen, to foster that, to cherish it, to nurture it, make it stronger. The second aspect is to not get entangled in unwholesome states or unskillful states that have already arisen. So if greed arises or anger arises, not to cherish it and foster it and nurture it, but to understand the suffering inherent in that and to let it be, let it go. The third aspect is to encourage skillful states that have not yet arisen. And the fourth aspect is to discourage unskillful states not yet arisen not to go out looking for trouble. And so not to consciously cultivate that. And this is based on an understanding of the power of our thoughts. That what we think does have an effect. And that certain kinds of thoughts inherently will bring endless suffering. That getting entangled and enmeshed and cultivating them and enhancing them can by their very nature bring nothing but more and more suffering. For example, thoughts of comparison. You might be sitting here and comparing yourself to other people in the room who are also sitting here. The characteristic of comparison or comparing in the mind as a defilement is an interesting one because it doesn't matter what conclusion you draw. The very act of comparing or comparison is considered a defilement. In other words, you may find yourself better than or not as good as or even equal to another person. And regardless of which of those three you decide, it's considered a defilement. And the reason is that it can only bring endless suffering. It can never bring a sense of rest or peace or completion. Just think for a moment what it's like. You're sitting here, and maybe your knees hurt, and there's somebody sitting next to you or in front of you, who never moves, and you can't stand it. And you sit there thinking, they're better than I am. 
and I can't stand it. I hate them. You know, wouldn't it be great if some disaster were to befall them? You know? Or the person sitting next to you is constantly moving, and you sit there and think, well, my knees may hurt, but at least I don't move constantly. You know, I'm a much better yogi than they are. And maybe there's a tiny little moment of satisfaction, but then comes the insecurity. What if they get better? You know, what if by this afternoon they don't move at all? Then they've, they've progressed by leaps and bounds, you know, and I'm just crawling along. Or they, st they stay the same. They're still moving constantly, and you think, well, I'm okay on that side, but on the other side, here's this other person who's, who's not moving at all, so I may be better than that person, but I'm still worse than them. It's tremendous uneasiness. There's no possibility with that kind of mind state of having a sense of peace, because you never know. I mean, someone may arrive tomorrow who will never move. <laughs> and so by its very nature, no matter what the immediate conclusion is, by its very nature, it brings distress and it brings agitation and it brings unhappiness. And so we can learn about these things from looking within, looking in our minds. And we can do something about it. We don't need to cultivate it. We don't need to enhance it and get involved over and over and over and over again. This does not mean that it will cease to arise. What arises in our minds is the result of conditioning. It's the result of many factors. And so it may come up two billion times in an hour, and that's fine. We do not need to relate to it in a conditioned way, a feeling that's right. This is going to make me feel good about myself, to know that I'm sitting better than this person, because it won't. And so based on that understanding, we can break that pattern and begin to relate to our thoughts in a very different way. And so what it comes down to is seeing that cultivating thoughts of, of greed, of wanting, or of aversion, or of cruelty, wanting to harm others, can only bring a sense of harm to oneself. And that thoughts of love and compassion and wisdom and mindfulness can only bring happiness. And so we can, we can move effectively. Energy or effort is the one mental state that accomplishes all of this because it transforms our good intentions into reality. When we apply our effort or our energy moment after moment, we can basically do whatever it is we want to do. And so it means, in terms of intensive practice, being quite sincere, coalescing our energy, gathering it together, not dispersing it, and applying it very carefully 
really abandoning ourselves and not holding back, not hesitating. In terms of the practice, it's very specific. And the subtlety of understanding grows as we go on. Right effort does not mean straining, and it does not mean struggling, and it does not mean resenting some externally imposed system. What it does mean is this incredible wholeheartedness and commitment and a very great constancy to the mindfulness. Not giving up and not pulling back. It also means a very strong simplicity of effort to remember the one thing that we are doing, which is cultivating mindfulness, and not to create elaborate, complex systems of analysis or intrigue in the mind, to stay very simple. Most of the time, you will not have the vaguest idea of what is going on in your practice not even a clue. And it is not an experiment in comparative religion. It is not a philosophical exercise. It's an extremely simple and difficult practical application of oneself from moment to moment. And so we have to stay simple. And when we forget, we have to remind ourselves It is really very simple to be present, to be mindful, to pay attention. There is also a strong sense of immediacy to right effort. This is what I spoke of the other night, to have that sense of this very breath and this very step, not looking beyond it, not looking beyond this moment's experience and the very depth of it for answers. Returning always to right now and right now and right now. It's a very pragmatic process. It's the doing of it that makes the difference not even respecting it hugely in terms of having faith will make the real difference. What makes the difference is the doing of it. And very strongly, it is a balanced effort. The traditional example is one of someone tuning some kind of stringed instrument. In the text, they say lute, and we usually say guitar. (laughs) So imagine somebody is tuning a guitar. If the strings are too tight, the sound will not be the right sound. And at the same time, if the strings are too loose, the sound will not be the right sound. There's actually an appropriate balance. 
so that it is just the right sound. And this balance can be continually renewed so that it is with this balanced energy that we are over and over again beginning and beginning again and beginning again. One thing that might clarify somewhat the sense of balance is a further discussion of what Joseph has mentioned briefly previously, and that is the sense of having right aim or correct aim towards the object that we're focusing on. Our goal in practice from moment to moment is to connect with what is arising right then, to make a connection with the breath or the sensation or the sound. Because as we connect in an enduring way, we can come to learn about the process of all these things. So this is what we want primarily, is to make this connection. When we connect with the object of this very moment, of the present, and then this one, and then this one, and then this one, we get a sense of that appropriate energy. There are two examples that are used to describe this. The first originally was, if you take a fork in your hand and you direct it towards a piece of meat that's on your plate, which we have changed to, <laughs> if you take a fork in your hand and you direct it towards something on your plate, such as a piece of broccoli, okay? <laughs> so you've got a piece of broccoli on your plate and what you want to do is have this fork touch it and go in with just enough force or energy so that you can then lift it and bring it to your mouth and eat it. Now, if there's too little energy, then what will happen will be that your arm will stay in midair. There will not be enough energy to actually have the fork touch the broccoli and go in. If there's too much energy, there are a few possibilities. <laughs> One is that the fork will just glance right off the piece of broccoli. It will kind of hit it and go aside because, because it's, it's going to angle off when there's just too much force. The other possibility is that it will go right to the piece of broccoli and break the plate, which will not do you very much good. There is just the right amount of energy and aim so that you just go right to it in this very moment. The other example is that of shooting an arrow at a target. And it's just the same sense. If there's too little energy, you may aim the arrow at the target and it will kind of plop at your feet. It will go a certain distance, but not enough it will fall short of the target. If there's too much energy, it may hit the target and go bouncing off, or it may overreach the target altogether and go beyond, fall beyond 
where you want it to go. There is an appropriate amount of energy which you can become very sensitive to. You can observe in your own experience when your attention is falling far short of the object and when it is going way beyond in anticipation of the next moment. It is almost as though, even though your body may not move at all, it's almost as though your body were reaching out, going beyond the breath or beyond this moment, wanting the next and wanting the next. Because there's too much energy, there's too much force. And so you can come to feel these kinds of subtle changes and come back to balance. With this balanced energy and correct aim towards just this moment, then in each moment the mindfulness can be very powerful and fruitful. And so applying our energy continuously and yet in a balanced way. Another aspect of refining this effort and refining the energy so that it's not straining and it's not creating this kind of unbearable tension is actually to have a great deal of confidence in oneself and to be working confidently with a sense of self-assurance. When I was in Burma this last time, there was a period when I was, I was not doing Vipassana. I was doing intensive metta, loving-kindness meditation, all day long, every day, which was very wonderful. The day that Upandita changed my practice was giving me new instructions. Um, it was a long process, and so there wasn't time during the interview. And so he called me in that night. I stayed after the discourse so that he could, he could begin to give me instructions in doing the loving-kindness meditation. And he started off by looking at me and saying, do you think you're going to succeed in this practice? And in my mind, I thought, there's a trap in there somewhere. <laughs> I have to be very careful about what I say. He's looking for conceit. <laughs> And because I thought, oh, he's looking for conceit, you know, I have to be very careful, I basically evaded the question. <laughs> and I said, well, <laughs> I don't know if I'll be successful or not, <laughs> but I know I'll really enjoy it and it'll be really good for me. And, and he just looked at me and he shook his head. You know, <laughs> and he said, you've got to approach this with complete confidence. Later on, when I'd finished sitting and I was doing some reading, <coughs> I was reading about doing metta practice because I was so curious about it, having just done it. And the, the sutta began with the Buddha exhorting the bhikkhus to sit down and establish themselves in a sense of confidence. <laughs> and certainty about doing it well. Doing it so that they experience the fruits, so that they experience the benefits. And I was amazed to see that 
what he had been doing actually was not just a personal exchange, that it was based on the very classical teaching. And so I looked further, just through different sutras that talked about all kinds of practice, mindfulness practice and, and vipassana practice. And in many places, I found things like the bhikkhu or the yogi resolves upon success, confident of putting away greed and putting away attachment and putting away anger. And I remembered at that point that part of the traditional teaching about faith, a big part of the traditional teaching about faith, is to have faith in oneself. To have the kind of faith in oneself that can give forth and yield this kind of effort. It's a very confident, and because of that, at ease, not straining and not struggling, but a very graceful effort based on that, on that foundation of having faith in oneself. In knowing that, it is really, it is not by accident that one comes to an appreciation of the Dharma and an interest in pursuing it in a practical way. It is not by accident that all of you are sitting here. And so you can have confidence in your ability to actually put the teachings into practice and experience benefit from it. It's not a hypothetical issue. If you put it into practice with sincerity, you will experience benefit. And you are all completely capable of doing that. So it's working with that confidence, with that faith in yourself. I think if you find yourself doing that, the quality of the energy may change quite significantly. There can be an immense outpouring of energy, a constancy and a commitment and a continual renewal of effort without the kind of judgment and comparison and self-condemnation that can produce so much of that sense of being strained, of the struggle not finding the actual moment's experience good enough, wanting it to be something else, rather than paying attention to it as it is. So work with that a little bit in your practice and see if it affects the quality of that effort. So this is the active side, it's the effort and being engaged, being full, being wholehearted, really caring about what we do in each moment, knowing that it has an effect. The other side, which is not to care, teach us not to care, does not mean to be indifferent or to be callous. It means not to care in perhaps the old way or previous way that we did care, which is to say, not to be involved in attachment and clinging, 
and caring in that way and not to be looking for a sense of security or stability in constantly changing events, which can never provide that sense of stability or security. When I think of that quote, teach us not to care in terms of the practice, I primarily think of two factors that we develop. The first of these is the quality of patience, which is an incredible strength. In, in texts such as the Buddhist dictionary, they define patience or they explain, describe patience as the cool shade of a tree to a person affected by the heat of the sun. Patience is relief. <laughs> that spirit of tolerance is the same as relief because it can remove the, the strain and the stiffness and the resistance. There is infinite patience that is needed to ardently pursue this practice. And often in my practice, I would comfort myself by saying, if nothing else is happening, at least I'm developing patience, <laughs> which is not an insignificant thing. Patience is a great power. <coughs> Just before I came down here, I was reading in one of the texts that Mahasi Sayadaw wrote that patience can carry you to Nibbana. You don't even have to carry it. It can carry you. It is that that greatest strength. So if you think of acting in accord with the laws of nature, a usual example is of a hen sitting on an egg. The hen has to keep sitting there, otherwise nothing will happen. We have to act in accordance with the laws. I'll tell you one of my favorite stories about Joseph, <laughs> which is <laughs> Joseph told me <laughs> that when he was young, he had a garden. And as things began to grow, he got so excited that one thing he would do would be he would go down to the garden and he would see the little green things of the carrot tops, and he would get so excited that he would pull out the carrot to see how well it was growing. <laughs> we do this many, many times. You can feel it in your practice, stepping back from it to see how well it's going. All kinds of ways. We forget that all we need to do is come into harmony with the law of nature. The carrot will grow if we provide the water and the nutrient and the sun and the space, it will grow. That is what we need to be doing, not to pull it out <laughs> to see whether it's, it's working or not. To have that sense of patience, to have a sense of long enduring constancy, this does not mean a sense of gritting your teeth and waiting things out. 
waiting for them to change. It's not endurance in that sense. But it's a very open-hearted acceptance of how things are, knowing that if we come into harmony with nature, if we water that garden, if we take care of the plant, it will grow in time. Everything happens in its own time. We once received a letter here addressed to the Instant Meditation Society. <laughs> which is very funny, but... <laughs> and I used to get this image of, you know, sometimes wondering what, what their, their thought was, you know, like we would send back a, a freeze-dried package or something and <laughs> just add water, and there it was. And yet that is so reflective of our society and our conditioning. We want things to happen instantly. We want things to happen before right now, even. They must happen right away. Otherwise, we feel dissatisfied. We feel betrayed. It's not right. It's interesting to spend time in Asia where, rightly or wrongly, and with a lot of different consequences, both good and bad, there is a very different sense of time. Basically, there's no sense of time. <laughs> there's, there's a very timeless quality to being there and very little impatience. If something doesn't happen in this lifetime, it will happen in the next lifetime, which can be very annoying if you're you know, waiting for a package or something. <laughs> But it's interesting to step out of this framework, even for a little while, to sense just the strength of our own conditioning. We want things to happen right away. This practice does not work this way. We need infinite patience. It is a slow, <coughs> gradual development. The Buddha himself said that progress in meditation is like the ocean floor gradually sloping away. This is how it works. This is how it develops. It does not happen instantly. And we can enjoy and appreciate what we're doing so much more with this kind of acceptance that is patience. Another quote from Mahasi Sayadaw, he said in this same book, patience is the highest form of devotion. To have that willingness to be present and to be open and to be accepting, regardless of what is going on. The second aspect that comes to my mind when I think of that phrase, teach us not to care, is that of equanimity. Equanimity is being present without judging through all of the different changing experiences of the body and of the mind and of life itself. All of the different changes and the vicissitudes, the constant succession of events that we experience in life, going from pain to pleasure and back to pain and back to pleasure, 
or experiencing loss and then gain, or praise and then blame, or fame and then disrepute. This is the nature of our lives. This is what happens. It is constantly changing from one to the other and back again. And there is nothing we can do about that. This is how things are. There's a story that I like from the time of the Buddha in which somebody who was very eager for some teachings came to the monastery one day. And he came upon a monk who was meditating very deeply and silently. And he asked the monk for some teachings. And the monk didn't say anything. And the man got furious and walked away. And he came back the next day. And he came upon Sariputra, who was the chief disciple of the Buddha and the most renowned for learning and for intellectual knowledge of the teachings. This man asked Sariputra for a discourse. And because Sariputra was so learned, he talked on and on and on and on in very great detail about a lot of different facets of the teaching. And again, the man became really furious and walked away. So the third day, he came back. And he came upon Ananda, who was the Buddha's attendant. And he asked Ananda for teaching of the Dharma. And Ananda, knowing that on one day, this man had become furious because the monk had said too little. He'd said nothing. And the next day, the man had become furious because the monk had said too much, decided that he would deliver a very carefully composed, moderately length discourse on the Dharma, which he did. And the man said in response to him, how can you take such profound matters and give them such a short amount of time? And he became furious and he went away. So somebody repeated this whole sequence of events to the Buddha. And the Buddha said, if you speak, some people will blame you. If you remain silent, some people will blame you. There is always blame in this world. And that is true of our lives. There is always praise and blame and loss and gain and pleasure and pain, the constantly changing flow of events. And it's true of our meditation practice. We move from one experience to the next. Working with a sense of equanimity towards it all, not choosing to accept or reject, being present, being wholeheartedly present, and allowing it to be as it is. When we can do this, we are not thrown around and tossed about by the ever-changing circumstances that we experience in this meditation hall or in our lives. And so we have the ability to experience a kind of contentment that is beyond measure. It's a happiness that is not based on things staying the same, because we can allow them to change. 
We are not thrown into dismay when they do. So these are the two aspects of our practice here, the very active and full and wholehearted engagement so that we are very total with our energy, quite wholehearted, moment after moment in being here. And also the cultivation of the deep peace that comes from being patient and being allowing and having equanimity, developing equanimity. These two aspects come together in a practical sense when we can detach from the constantly changing flow of mental and physical phenomena, when we do not judge them and do not condemn them and do not analyze them, but we aim our effort, this very wholehearted presence, towards being mindful, towards a continuity of being mindful, so that anything that arises is fine. It's really okay if we are continuously mindful. We do not have to judge it. We do not have to try to change it. We do not have to strain or struggle. We can allow it to be there as it is and yet put in moment after moment after moment of being present. And when there is a gap, as most likely there will be, to begin again wholeheartedly and completely with a sense of confidence over and over again. This is how these, both of these aspects can be realized. With both of these aspects, then the effort is right effort. It's not going to produce more judgment, more greed, and more aversion. With right effort, there is not a single moment of effort that is wasted. There is no such thing as it going to waste. The Buddha said at one point that the karmic fruit of performing an act of generosity, such as offering food to the Buddha himself and to all of the Sangha, all of the monks and nuns, is an enormous deed to do. It has extraordinary benefits to perform such a deed, to actually offer food uh, to someone such as the Buddha himself and to people who are pursuing the practice and have realized some understanding. And he said something like, 100 times greater than this extraordinarily powerful act is to live for one moment in loving kindness towards all beings. Just one moment of having the mind devoted without exclusion and without a sense of distinction towards caring and concern for all living beings. Just one moment 
is a hundred times more powerful than that extremely powerful act of giving to the Buddha himself. And then he went on to say that 100 times more powerful than that one moment of dwelling in loving kindness is a single moment of actually knowing for oneself the arising and passing away of phenomena, of events. So just one moment of seeing how things change can so completely transform our understanding of ourselves and of our lives that it is 100 times more powerful than a moment spent in loving kindness, which is 100 times more powerful than that very special act of giving. So while it is not instant, it is very, very powerful to have even one moment of mindfulness. So powerful that the Buddha said at the end of the Satipatthana Sutta, that if one were to be continuously mindful for seven days, that he would guarantee highest perfect enlightenment, or arhanthood which I think is an indication of both how extraordinarily powerful it is and how extraordinarily difficult it is. Because think how many times in the time that is remaining you have the opportunity to be continuously mindful in an unbroken fashion for seven days. Many times over will you have this opportunity. It's extremely powerful and it's quite difficult, which is why it demands so much commitment and so much earnestness of continuity of going on. I think I'll close with that for tonight and not take any questions. Um, If you have a question, you can come up and ask me. And everyone else can very mindfully (laughs) begin their seven days right now in getting up and beginning to walk. Thank you. Oh, yeah. The list for this coming week's 